Would you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13, if you have them? If you don't, there's pew Bibles in front of you. Um, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, my father was going to be here, uh, and I told him, hey, it's Valentine's Day, why don't you uh, open up something from 1 Corinthians 13 for us? Um, and it, it, believe it or not, it wasn't Nebraska's weather that scared them off. Uh, they're having horrible weather in Oklahoma right now, and they couldn't even make it out because of the snow and the roads and the ice. Um, so I'm glad that they're home, and hopefully they'll be here in a couple weeks, and if you haven't met them, you'll get to, you'll get to meet them. But we are going to be in 1 Corinthians 13 this morning, really focusing on verses 4 through 7, but I'm going to read in context, starting in verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the love described here is the same love with which you have loved us. And we recognize this morning that apart from that love, we would have nothing, we would be nothing. But Lord, having received that love, having been shown that love, I pray that we would respond by loving others in the same way. And so I pray you would open our eyes and our hearts this morning to behold the wonderful things you have for us in your word and that you would transform our hearts to love more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. What is love? And if that cheesy 90s techno song is running through your head right now, I apologize for doing that to you. Um, before I ever probably truly understood what it meant to love my spouse or my girlfriend at the time, before I ever understood what it meant to love Erica, I know for a fact that as a starstruck 17-year-old, I declared my love for her. Um, what I think I was referring to when I told her I loved her was the fact that her scent alone would send my heart rate through the roof every time I was with her. It was more of a puppy love or a being in love, you might call it. I am well aware that today is Valentine's Day. This is the day where we get to show off our mushiness and recall our love stories to friends and on Facebook, and we may spend a lot of money on dinner or on overpriced flowers. 
And while I am a bit of a Valentine's curmudgeon, um, Eric and I made this little agreement I'm so thankful for when we were 17 or 18 that, yeah, we didn't really care too much about Valentine's Day. We would try to express in other ways. Um, while I'm a little bit of a curmudgeon, don't let that get you too down because there are certainly worse things than a day that we would set aside to celebrating the gift of romantic love. Romantic love is a gift from God. But at the same time, I do wonder if all the emphasis, the association of love with red hearts and roses and chocolates often keep us from understanding or thinking more regularly about love in its highest sense. So this morning, I want to talk about, or I want the scriptures to inform us here on this highest love, this highest sense of love, specifically the type of love that is an attribute of God, the love that God is, we could say. And for those of you who have been in the church long enough, you will know that one Greek word may that be the only Greek word you know, agape. And you should all know it here in this church because we have agape women who are committed to loving one another like that. But the type of love that I'm talking about is, is a love that's not dependent on the response of the beloved. It's not dependent on an emotional feeling in the moment. I'm talking about the audacious, self-giving, self-sacrificing, long-suffering love that's grounded not in how I feel from day to day, but rather in who God is. It's not the love that we always feel like giving, even to those that we love most dearly, but, and it's very challenging and it's messy at times, but it is the love that I think all of us want to be shown. It's the love that all of us want, whether we feel like giving it from day to day. Now this passage, 1 Corinthians 13, though it's so often the focal point of weddings, in its context, it's actually part of Paul's corrective reproof to a very, very messy Corinthian church. This passage only applies indirectly to the love between, a love between husband and wife. It is most directly applied to how we treat one another in the church. 1 Corinthians 13 is, is a sort of poetic pause in a thought unit that runs from 1 Corinthians 12 through 1 Corinthians 14. So you can't really understand what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 13 unless you read 12 through 14, which is all about how we exercise our gifts within the church and how we care for one another within the church and how we regard each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so what Paul is kind of doing in this section here is he's saying, you've really mucked this whole thing up. You've gotten it all backwards because you've forgotten about the one thing that matters most in your relationships with one another. You've forgotten about the thing that matters most in the church of Christ. You've forgotten how to love. All the things that they were doing that we can read starting back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 all the way through the end, trying to gain knowledge in order to puff themselves up, dividing over allegiances to various teachers. Now, now see what's going on here. They're trying to gain knowledge about Christ, knowledge about God, good things, right, in order to puff themselves up, a bad thing. They're dividing over allegiances to 
Bible teachers, Paul and Apollos. So good things, right? Good teachers of the scripture, but they're making it a matter of division. They're taking one another to court within the church when they're wronged. They're boasting about immoral behavior in the church. They even turn the Lord's Supper, many of them, into a meal of indulgence and drunkenness while others in the church were going hungry. This was a very messed up church. And the bottom line is, for Paul, that he wants to get across to them is rather than seeking the good of the whole, rather than seeking the good of the church, it has been all about me first, me first, me first. Even when it comes to exercising the spiritual gifts God's given him, how can I do this to show off and to exercise my own glory? So he says, now let me tell you what it means to love in imitation of the love that God has for you. He says, if I speak in tongues of men and angels, because he's been talking about the use of tongues and prophecy for the last chapter, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It's just noise. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, so they were trying to gain as much knowledge as they could, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, so even if in my own sacrificial giving, if I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So what I want to zero in on today is this. As Christians, foremost, as Christians, we are called to love one another in the same way that God has loved us. As Christians, we are called to love one another as a matter of first importance in the same way that God has loved us. We can get distracted by so many other things. It sounds so simple, love each other, and yet so often we can veer astray. And I want you to know that if you really want to love well, you must understand the nature of divine love. If you truly want what's best for your brothers and sisters in Christ, if you truly want what's best for your husband or your wife, if you truly want what's best for your boyfriend or girlfriend, for your friends, if you truly want what's best for you, you must become a practitioner of 1 Corinthians 13 type of love. And what type of love is that? It's the love of God. So where's the place to start if we wanna learn how to apply that love to others? I think we need to begin with understanding his love in the gospel. So I want to begin with a simple gospel presentation to remind us of what love he has shown us. The gospel of love. God is holy. God is perfect. God is set apart. He is above us. He knows better than us. God is perfect in every way. In every single one of his attributes, he is perfect. And we know that God is love. He's not, it's not like love is it's, it's its own sort of thing. And we say, oh yeah, God is like that. But instead, whatever God does, whoever God is, that is love. Do you understand that? God is the standard of love. We don't measure God against our view of love. God is the standard of love. 
even in his judgment, it is a matter of love. Because like any loving judge, the most loving thing he could do is deal justly with sin. And this God who is love created us to enjoy his love in a relationship with him eternally. He designed us with a capacity to receive his love and to share in the goodness of his love. Yet, by our own choice, we rejected his love. We chose in our own wisdom to carve out our own path. We wanted to see if there was something, maybe something a little bit better out there than what he was willing to give us. And so we went astray from him, just like wandering sheep who are looking for better pasture. This was true of our first parents, Adam and Eve, and this is true of us today every time we sin. What would a God who is love do in response to this? What did the God of love do? Like I said, he wasn't able to simply dismiss our rebellion or overlook our sins. That would go against his character of love. His love would not allow him to overlook sin or to compromise on the truth of who he is. So instead, what did he do? He pursued us in love to the point where he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to rescue us from our greatest problem, our problem of sin. And that meant that Jesus, his son, who was the exact imprint of his nature and the radiance of the glory of God, also being perfect in love, willingly gave himself up for us. Despite the way that we would treat him and curse him and mock him and deny him, he willingly gave himself up for us, knowing that unless he took our place, we would have no hope of ever being reconciled to a perfect and holy, sinless, loving God. He overcame sin for us. He put away sin for us. He conquered death for us. And he established a way for us to have a loving relationship again with the God of love. That, brothers and sisters, is the kind of love that must fuel our love as Christians for one another. If you do not understand the gospel, if I were to come up to you after the church service and ask you, what is the gospel? And you couldn't, you couldn't explain to me why it is that Jesus had to die or God and his holiness and our sins and the problem and what that meant and the love that Christ showed us. If you do not understand the gospel, you do not understand how to love one another in the way that you are called to. All of these 15 descriptors here that Paul is about to rattle off are exemplified at the highest level in the cross of Christ Jesus. And the first one is this. Love is patient and kind. And this is maybe just kind of like a side point here, but I do think it's interesting. It does help me look at it in a new light. Um, all of these in the English we read as Adjectives, right? Love is patient, love is kind. But these, every one of these 15 descriptors is actually a verb in the Greek. So you could kind of think of it more like love is being patient or love is being kind. Love is not being rude. Love is not being resentful. I don't know, that just helps me just get that out there. But the first one is love is patient and kind. Love is being patient and kind. In, 
In the Corinthian church, in the suing of other people, other Christians, in taking them to court, in rushing into the Lord's table to gorge themselves, in their disregard of weaker brothers and sisters, I think you would agree with me that the Corinthians seem to be falling a bit short of patient and kind love for one another. I think their biggest problem was they, they, they didn't seem to have time to deal with the difficulties or weaknesses of others. Others who might drag them down or might slow them up. They wanted to get on with doing their thing and they didn't have time for the weaknesses of others. They weren't patient. Now, if all of us are being honest this morning, how many of us, even in the past week, have thought about something that a spouse did or a friend did or maybe even someone in the church or a neighbor that you thought was just completely ridiculous, and you thought, what is wrong with this person? How is it that they are so messed up that they have not attained to my level of sanctification yet? And what do you do? You begin to lose patience with them. How could you be so stupid? How could you forget to do that? Just kidding, Chris. That's a joke, an inside joke. Um, but that's, that's what we do, right? We, we, we measure, uh, we kind of have this idea of how, how uh, much we've grown in Christ as Christians and how far along the spectrum we are. And we look at the person that disappoints us over there and we say, what is wrong with you? Why don't you have your act together yet? We lose patience. Well, let's come back to the gospel. What does it mean to be patient in love? 2 Peter 3.9, Peter puts it like this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Do you ever think about patience in those terms? The way that God has been patient with us, that we have rejected him time after time, after time, and may even reject him multiple times next week. Yet he is there with us, for us, and pursuing us that we would reach repentance and enjoy his salvation. If you are finding that there is someone in your life who is continually testing you because they are not growing up quickly enough to be the person you think they ought to be, simply ask yourself, Has God been patient with me? Am I willing to be patient with others as the Lord has been and is still being patient with me? I'm not saying we don't hold out the truth. I'm not saying we don't provide correction and discipline for our children. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying in our orientation towards them to think of the patience we are supposed to have as the same as the patience that God has had with us. In Titus, Paul says to Titus, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of our works done by us in righteousness, not because we measured up to his standard, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That is a picture of of a kind and patient 
love. The next thing Paul tells us is that love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. And back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, to return to the events that were going on in the church, Paul said, brothers, I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, because of the way that they were acting. He says, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Where there is envy, where there is arrogance, where there is boasting, I can guarantee you there will always be strife. Envy or jealousy is rooted ultimately in ingratitude and discontentment with whatever God has given us. You think about it like this. If you were always content with what God had given you, then you would never have to covet what other people have. If God were always enough for you, then you would not have to get upset when a peer was honored at work and you were not, or recognized for their good work and you were not. You wouldn't have to get upset when you felt that your set of circumstances was way harder than your spouse's or your friend's. Think about this. Just in the past week, I know I've I've done this where Erica will tell me about something that is hard going on in her life. And the first thought will come to my, my head was like, oh, yeah, well, I've got it way harder than you. And instead of sitting there and listening to her, my first thought is to say, like, well, let me tell you about all the things that I've got going on with me. Any of you ever do that? What is the answer to envy? What is the answer to arrogance? What is the answer to boastfulness? Again, we can go back to the gospel. Just always have this reflex. Pray, pray and ask God that he would give you this reflex. Whenever you are tempted to feel these, these things coming in, just go back to the cross. Go back to the cross. Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There it is. You have everything you need in Christ. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Envy is the opposite of contentment. And what contentment does for us is contentment in God frees us to be able to give ourselves away in love for others. It frees us from a feeling of needing to boast, and instead it enables us to rejoice in the blessings of others. Could you imagine if God treated us in the way that I just described with Erica? If he looked at me and said, oh yeah, you think you've got it bad. Well, let me tell you what I had to do. Or if he, he looked down at us and said, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, no, no, I've, I, I, I've, I'm way better than you. I've, I've attained way more. I don't have time to mess with your little problems down here. Not only does God give us all good things through himself, but he also takes a loving interest in our lives. Zephaniah 3.17. How often do we quote from Zephaniah? Well, we should quote this all the time. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. 
This is how God takes an interest in us. This is how God loves us. This is how God cares for us. And I think it's a great example of how we are to strive to be with one another. The next thing Paul says is love is not rude. Now this passage, I, I, I think, uh, although there's a couple of weird phrases if you look in the, in the King James Version, but I think 1 Corinthians 13 actually reads a lot better and more poetic, uh, but actually reads a lot more literally, almost word for word, in the King James than it does in the English Standard Version. And I love the way it describes this. Maybe it's odd language for us today, but in the King James, it doesn't say love is not rude. It says, love doth not behave itself unseemly. Unseemly. Love doth not behave itself unseemly. The word literally means like, it's like out of shape or out of form. It's not in accordance with order and form. It's unshapely. It's dishonoring. It's shameful. It's, a, it's something that's not fitting for the value of the object that should be loved. So I'll give you just an example or uh, an illustration of this. If you were to go out today and you bought your child a, a pair of really nice, expensive leather shoes that they could only wear to church, and the first thing that they did was they put them on and ran outside with their friends and went to play football in the mud, and got them all messed up and destroyed them, you would be horrified. And you would be scolding him and you would be telling him you probably would never buy him shoes ever again because that would be unseemly behavior. It would be complete disregard for the value and the purpose of what you just bought him. You see, love honors God and love honors the church and love honors our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and love honors our spouse in accordance with their value. In accordance with their value. So as an example, God, infinite in value, right? Infinite in everything, sovereign over everything. He is to be revered above all. Anything that we would do to his character or to his word or to his design that is unfitting according to his value is, is hatred. It's not love. It, every time we sin, that is a way of treating God in a way that is completely unseemly according to his value. Take the church. The church is the bride of Christ, right? The cherished bride of Christ. That's the way he talks about the church in the scriptures. The, the bride of Christ who he purchased with his own blood, who he's purifying and making holy, whom he's set apart and he's washing with the water of the word and regenerating and making holy. Anytime we disparage the church of God, whether it's our own local assembly in the way that maybe we talk cynically about it, whether it's our lack of care for the church, whether it's by slander or insults of neighboring churches who are striving to please God and preach the gospel, anytime we do this, we bring shame to the bride of Christ. And anytime, to bring this down to the individual level, anytime as one who bears the name Christian, anytime we treat someone who is an image-bearing, spirit-indwelt, 
divinely arranged part of the body of Christ, taking that from 1 Corinthians 12, anytime we treat them as if we wish they were not here or we wish they were not a part of our lives or they were some kind of annoyance or interruption to us, it's like taking a sledgehammer to the temple of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 22, in response to the, the abuse of the Lord's Supper, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Love does not behave like that. Love honors one another in accordance with their value. And what is their value? They bear the image of God. What is our value as a Christian? The Spirit of God dwells in us. What is our value within the church? The Spirit has divinely arranged us to be part of this body for the good of the whole and the upbuilding of his church to the glory of God. Love does not insist on its own way. I think the King James says love is not self-seeking or it doesn't seek out self. That's what it literally says. Love does not seek out itself. Love is setting aside your interests, your preferences, your comfort in order to serve one another. Now, I don't know why it takes us men particularly, I think, so long to figure this out because even to this day, I'm getting better at it, but we'll have maybe a three-hour period where the kids are at home with a babysitter. And so like a date, if you will, but it's more of an unplanned, spontaneous thing. And we'll ask each other, so what do you want to do? And Erica might say like, well, I've really kind of wanted to go to Target. And I'll still find myself saying things like this. I don't want to go to Target. As if it's about what I want to do in the moment rather than how I can lay down my life and serve my wife. Men, what is wrong with us? Why can't we figure this out? It's not about what you want to do when your wife asks you that. I don't know why I keep looking at Rick. <laughs> Philippians 2, 3 through 7, Paul says it like this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Think about all the things they were doing. Knowledge to puff up. Using their gifts to, to brag violating the Lord's Supper to feed their bellies, neglecting the weak. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What did Jesus do? Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Love does not seek self. For all these, we can just say, imagine where we would be if Christ loved us like that. If Christ in heaven said, no way am I leaving everything behind to go down there to mess with those crazy people. 
Love does not seek self. And love is not irritable. Love is not easily provoked to anger or resentful. Love is not irritable or resentful. Again, these are closely related to the ones we've talked about above. What makes us irritable? What makes someone grumpy? What makes someone prone to anger? I think it's a sense that people, other people God has put in my life, are interruptions and an annoyance and a hindrance to the thing I need to get rather than a gift that God has given me. Again, what if Christ had thought of you with your pride and with your stubbornness as an annoyance or an interruption to his peaceful way of life in heaven? Imagine if he was up in heaven and he was about to come down in the flesh and he thought, oh, I've got it so good up here. I'm not getting involved in that. Imagine if his, his prayer in the garden of Gethsemane before going to the cross went more like this. Father, I'm so fed up with these people. Can you just make them go away and just draw me up? Let's get the ascension done before the cross and everything will be good. Could you imagine if he treated us like that? Where would we be? But we know this because the scripture tells us. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 1 John 3.16. Again, the English Standard Version renders this next word resentful, but it literally reads, does not keep account of wrongs. Does not keep a record of wrongs. Does not count our wrongs against, does not count someone's wrongs against them. Maybe you've known some people like this or you've been this kind of person. I'm sure all of us have at one point or another who will say, it's okay, I forgive you. But then later down the road, when they feel wronged by something you did, sure enough, they will pull out the old log book, the record book and remind you of that sin and 16 other specific sins over the past two decades where you really messed up big time. Just as God does not reckon our sins against us, he does not count our sins against us when we are in Christ, forgiven in Christ, so the one who loves Christians loves by forgiving and not keeping records. Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, should count iniquities, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. In Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Love does not keep a record of wrongs because we understand the love that has been applied to us and we are grateful that he doesn't hold our sins still against us. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. And there may be two things that Paul is up to here. I'm not sure which one exactly he has in mind because it seems when he's talking about rejoicing in wrongdoing, it seems to be a little bit of a reference back to 1 Corinthians 5 where they were boasting in open sexual immorality that was going on within the church. He says, you, you boast in it. It's actually reported that there is this immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. 
For a man has his father's wife. Are you arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Your boasting is not good. And if that's the case, if that's what he's referring back to, then the point is that agape love, God's love, the love we are to apply to one another, loves each other enough, loves each other enough to not oppose the truth of God, to not allow such ungodly behavior to persist in the church or in the relationship. The, the love that we have for God mandates that we love one another in a way that says, I'm not going to let you fall away from God. But it could also mean something more like this, rejoicing in wrongdoing as rejoicing in when someone falls into sin and gets their just desserts. Have you ever found yourself rejoicing because you're, you're thinking, I told you, if you did that, this is what's going to happen. And it happened, and you find yourself like, yes, I'm so glad that they got what they deserved. Rejoicing when someone falls. When some maybe prominent Christian leader falls, and, and we say, yeah, I knew he had it coming the whole time. And we, we kind of let ourselves rejoice in it. Gordon Fee, who, who writes a commentary on, on 1 Corinthians uh, says it like this, love absolutely rejects that most pernicious form of rejoicing over evil, gossiping about the misdeeds of others. It is not gladdened when someone else falls, especially someone who deserves it. In many ways, this is the most difficult of all, how glad we often are when someone who deserves it gets it. But we know that God in his mercy does exactly the opposite. Though we deserve justice, though we deserve his wrath, yet he holds out the truth for us to take hold of eternal life. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And finally, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Again, when Paul is admonishing the Corinthians for taking each other to court, for trying to settle their matters out in public, he says this, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. And the point that he's, he's making here is that People within the church can't settle things with the tools that they've been given through the gospel. Spirit indwelt believers are not able to find peace with one another, so they're taking it to the civil authorities. And it's a horrible witness to the, to the world because the world's saying, you guys can't figure anything out. You guys can't get along. And, and, and many times, that's how the world views the church today. They see split after split and conflict after conflict, and they say, what do you guys have? I don't, I don't even want what you have, because if that's what it does, then, then what is that? So Paul says, why not rather bear with, suffer, long suffer, wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? What I don't think Paul is saying here is that a Christian must be so naive so gullible and so easily taken advantage of. But instead, 
A Christian should be so secure in Christ, so confident that God will never leave him nor forsake him, so confident in the abiding possession of the Holy Spirit that they are able to bear burdens and even be taken advantage of, yet not feel that they are at at a loss for having helped. I know sometimes I do this. I will make a decision whether to help someone, a stranger maybe, based on how I think they might treat me in return. I weigh out whether I can bear someone's burden based on what I stand to lose from bearing it, or whether I might be taken advantage of if I love sacrificially. Again, this is not Christ's version of agape love. 1 Peter 2.23, Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. If you fear, if, if you are unwilling to serve or to help someone because you fear the response that they may have for you, look to Christ who was already seeing the response of reviling and hurling insults and being mocked. And on the cross, what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Because he had everything he needs. We have everything we need in Christ. We don't have to fear that if we serve someone, we're going to be at a loss for having served them. Love is willing to suffer long. Love is willing to bear with others' failings because this is exactly the way that Christ has dealt with us. And finally, I know this is kind of a transition into the next section, but I, but I wanted to include this here. Love never ends. Love never ends. Paul's argument for love being the chief attribute, the one that is of supreme importance for us in the church, is that it will never end. Prophecies are going to come to an end. Speaking in tongues will cease. Even the acquiring of knowledge is going to no longer have a purpose. But love is as permanent as God himself. Therefore, without love, you contribute nothing of permanent value. If you have not love, you have nothing of permanent value. And just as a a means of an immediate application this morning, in a year that has been filled with so much division, strife, envy, boasting, arrogance, slander, and all kinds of unseemly behavior, it is so easy for us to just kind of go along with the flow and get caught up in the fray and just start hating other people or to adopt an attitude of perpetual grumpiness, irritability. And by the same token, in our weeks ahead that come with job setbacks, piling bills, chaotic parenting, which all leads to short tempers, hurt feelings, and long-held grudges, it can be so easy to assume a posture of envy or vengeance or grumpiness, or just despising one another for who they are. Remember what spirit dwells in you. 
And remember what spirit dwells in your brother and sister in Christ. And be reminded today and every day after of what kind of love the Father has shown you. I think it's summarized best like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Let's strive to love in that manner.